This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. This is something that you need to be aware of, and I'll bet you will not be aware of this until, well, you get that letter from your bank that says, it's time to renew your mortgage. Or you decide you want to buy a house for the first time and you have to qualify for a mortgage. Good luck. In January of this year, new rules were brought in in the so-called, what they call, stress test for mortgage borrowers. Now, the borrower's finances will be tested to see if they could pay higher rates. Mortgage brokers say that as a result of these new rules, many new buyers are seeing their purchasing power drastically reduced. Uh, This is causing a lot of problems, and not just for people buying houses. This is also for people that could be renewing. Joining us to talk about this is Chris is uh, Don Fox, rather a senior executive financial consultant uh, with the Investors Group, and of course you hear him every week uh, weekend rather here on nine hundred CHML. Don, how are you doing this morning? Very good, Bill. How about yourself? Good. Uh, it's a stress test because it causes all this stress on us, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Especially like you said, for the first time buyer, um, anybody who wants to shop around or maybe move to another institution, they'll find it's uh, definitely not as flexible as it used to be. And that's interesting because I know a lot of folks that have been in the market for some time and and what they have done in the past, and I know you guys have talked about this on the show on Saturday morning, is they've said, look it, I gotta shop around. You know, you I don't like the rate you're offering. And and that was a that was not an idle threat because you could actually shop the market. Uh with these regulations in place right now, it's gonna make it a lot more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. For the again, it comes down to the type of uh um, you know, buyer or the one renewing, if they're, if they're pretty much at the, you know, just making it financially on their mortgage payment, um, they may be just wise and have no choice for that matter to stay where they are. And, and there's a lot, let's, let's look at this from two angles then. First of all, the, let's talk about the folks that already have mortgages and may be renewing. And then I want to talk about uh, the pressure that's on people that just want to get into the market. Uh, because what we're seeing, and there was a story in the uh, CBC website uh, from yesterday, uh, that indicated that what's happening here, of course, is, well, you know, rates are in a state of flux right now. Uh, even if you're staying with your own institution, there's a pretty good chance they're probably going to jack the rates up just a little bit because of what's happening with the Bank of Canada lately. Yeah, they, it, it becomes, uh, I said, less flexible. They know that they can say, well, uh, we don't. We know that they won't be moving. So we don't may, may not have to be quite as competitive as we had to be before. And so they may jack it up by, you know, 0.2% more than that they would have um, on renewal before. But, uh, you know, the stress test is there for a reason. I, I'm actually an advocate of it. Um, you know, they tried to, years ago, say you had to qualify for a five-year mortgage. Well, what happened is all the banks lowered the five-year mortgage. So then everybody could still qualify for a mortgage. So the government came back and said, okay, we've we got our own rate, and it's going to be currently it's 5.34%. And the banks aren't charging 5.34. I know ourselves uh, here at Investors Group, I think, uh, depending on you know, the situation, it's about 5.29, sorry, 3.29 for a five-year mortgage. So there's a big difference from the posted rates and what they're really getting, but you still have to qualify. And that's the hard thing right now. Why is it more difficult to qualify? You, you, you said there was a, some rationale behind this. Maybe you could explain that to our listeners. Well, they're looking at the basically the debt people are in generally right now. And Canada is is one of the highest in the world. Um, debt per income, it actually is it's hitting new highs. It just actually hit a new high in January. It's slightly down from that. So they know that, you know, with, um, with the uh, real estate market rising, and it's, you know, went up by, you know, at one time 30%, it's dropped back a little bit. They, they, the banks don't want to take that undue risk of people walking away from their house. So they want to make sure that if interest rates do rise, that they'll be able to afford the new mortgage payment. 
And definitely we're in, a, in a, a situation where rates are rising. And a lot has to do with even the five-year bond rate. Um, currently, the, the five-year bond rate, and the banks have to go and borrow often from the, from the government. And they'll borrow money at the five-year bond rate, then lend it to consumers at, you know, a little bit higher than that. Well, the five-year bond rate is 2.25% right now. A year ago, is only 0.9%. So there's a, a 1.35% difference that the banks have to now borrow from. So, you know, it's definitely putting pressure on the banks, which then they just pass that on to the consumer. Let me ask you something. Back in the, the recession, the terrible recession we went through in 08 and 09, uh, we saw what happened down in the States, and where you're right, Don. I mean, there were some people that were just walking away from their houses, uh, you know, dropping the keys off of the bank and said, we just can't afford this. And and, and the, ex, the the explanation that we got back then was, well, they were a lot more lax with, uh, with qualification for mortgages back in those days, especially down in the States. And uh, lots of people that probably didn't really qualify for mortgages did. So they got in over their heads. But the, you know what? We always said on this side, and I think you and I talked about this on the show back in those days, oh, that'll never happen here. The regulations are different in this country. Is there a concern now that it might get to that point? Well, it's still apples and oranges, Bill. Um, okay. You know, you go back to that day, they were literally not charging any payment for two years. So anybody could get into the market, not make a mortgage payment for two years on the basis that real estate prices would continue to rise, and then the person would sell their house within the two-year period and make a profit. Oh, yeah. So it was pure gambling. It was just the Wild West out there. Now, we're not even anywhere close to that. Now, at the time, we did um, see um, Canada was able to get 35-year mortgages, um, and then we dropped it to 30, and then we dropped it to 25. We've made things tougher since then um, because of exactly what we've seen, you know, south of the border. We were getting, uh, we were kind of getting into their territory slightly, but never to the extent that the U.S. was getting into. All right, so it's, I don't want to, you know, ring the bell here. They did do the chicken little thing here, but it, but it is concerning. Why then is the pressure on people that are already in there? In other words, uh, if if you've owned a house for say ten years, whatever the case might be, and it's time for a renewal again this year, uh, the immediate response is, well, look, I've already gone through this process. I've got my mortgage. Why can't you just renew it like they used to do in the old days? I mean, before these regulations came in, like in previous years. You just get a notice from the bank, and you'd say, "Yeah, okay, just re-up me again." And there might be a marginal change in the rate, but not usually much. And bingo, bango, you're off of the races. Now, not so much. It's not so easy. Well, the rates have risen. The, the prime lending rate has risen um, from the July of last year, so not even a year, 0.75 percent. So I did read that article, and they made it almost sound it was a surprise that you know the these rates are gone up, you know, 0.2 to 0.5 percent. Actually, I think that's on the low side. Um, it, it would have definitely have gone up. So I'm, we're looking at mortgages for 2% uh, a year ago, and now we're for, if, if, for five years, and now you're looking at 3.2%, which makes total sense with the interest rates rising. And those are historic lows. You go back 30 years, and we were like in a party for debt. Okay, it was just a great time. Great, go, go into debt, you're borrowing at 2%, why not? Uh, but it has an impact. Um, people are borrowing right to the limit. And that's kind of human nature, too. It's not really the interest rate they're looking at. They're often looking at the payment. So as long as they could afford it, no problem. And, and you and I, yeah, because you guys deal with this all the time, right? I mean, mm-hmm. hey, it's never going to happen to me. I'm, I'm okay. It might be a little tight right now, but, you know, happier days are, are coming. Or are they? You've got to be optimistic. You're hoping you're going to get sure. pay raises. You're, you're hoping that, uh, you know, as your income rises, you, you'll be able to afford um, a mortgage renewal. So you have to take that blind leap of faith. Well, the banks and really the government has put this stress test to make sure that people can afford it and they don't get over their head. Um, they don't, it's kind of like Big Brother watching you to, to a certain extent. 
that we don't all of a sudden buy a house that's you know eight hundred thousand when really we should have only bought a house say for six hundred thousand, and then when it comes up, interest rates go up uh, you know one or two percent, you can't afford the renewal. And then what? And then you try to sell the house. What if it's a recession and the housing prices have dropped? Um, people, we're, we got to the point that I don't think anybody ever thought housing prices could drop. And you and I have been around a uh, while well enough to know. I look at my, one of my first houses I bought. Would have been, you know, I had a, a child in 1990, bought my house, and within two years my house dropped 20, 25%. Yeah, but I can go back to the, uh, to the 80s when house prices doubled in almost five years. Exactly. And, and everybody I, thought, well, this is the way it's always going to be. <laughs> but guess what? It wasn't. <laughs> and, and we've been through this, but it's funny. History does repeat itself. And if interest rates do start to rise, particularly at the debt levels Canadians are in right now, you're, you're, it would put a lot of stress. And this financial stress test is, is far from is a small price to pay for the stress they would have if they had to sell their house. Now, the wild card in this whole process for people that feel as if, hey, this is not fair, I, I, what am I supposed to do here? My understanding is that uh, credit unions are not uh, under this, this, uh, this new rule. This is just for chartered banks. Is that right? That, that's correct. Um, that being said, most of the credit unions are following suit. Okay. Okay, so as of I'd January, say take the air out of my balloon. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had to check that one up myself. I, I said, wow, that's pretty good. I, 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 and I, I looked at Desjardins. They started their own January 1st, used the exact same stress test. Others are using kind of a hybrid test. They're not using, say, the federal test, but they're using some stricter test. Okay. Um, may not be as strict as the federal one. So I, I think it's all in the bank's best interest. They don't want to simply have a lot of high-risk loans either. Um, on the basis of if interest rates continue to rise, what's going to happen? And, you know, if I was a lender and you're seeing, you know, you're lending at, at 2%, you think, wow, it wouldn't take long for us to go back up to 4%. Um, boy, you know, you go back in our history of, of borrowing money for mortgages, we would have, we would have you know, done anything to get a 4% mortgage. Oh, yeah. You know, and so 4% is, is considered still a great mortgage. Well, we kind of got used to that, you know, 2 2.5% for quite some time. And, uh, you know, 4% is easily attainable, and we're, we're getting there now for that matter. Okay, for, so people that are renewing right now, I mean, in the past, you've always said, look, if you're not happy, shop around. You know, yes. it's a free market. Uh, it seems as if this stress test is making it a little more difficult to shop around because uh, it, it's a bit of a gambit because you don't know whether or not you're going to have to pay more. I mean, because you're going to have to undergo the. Even if you're a veteran and you've had a house, if you go to a different organization, a different bank, you have to undergo this stress test. So you, who knows what's, you know, you may or may not qualify. So the, the inclination may be, well, I should stick around. Should we still try to shop around or is it, is it better to just stick where you are? Absolutely shop around. Okay. You know, this stress test is mainly for the marginal um, buyer. That's really at the end's width of can they afford this mortgage. And so they probably will likely, will qualify for an extra 2% higher rate. And that's just a test. They won't get that rate. That's just a test to see if they would qualify if the rate was 5.34%. Most people who've been in their house for five years or longer would qualify with the higher rate. And then they're sitting there as a perfect, uh, a perfect customer to go to another bank saying, listen, I, I pass a stress test, give me a great rate. And so they're, they're in a great position of strength if they qualify for, if they pass a uh, stress test, and then they go elsewhere. But the best advice you've given us over the years when we're doing this with mortgages, whether it's with our own institution or shopping around, is, is don't just assume that the, that, that the posted rate is the rate. There's oh. always going to be some flexibility. 
Tons, tons. Actually, 80% of, 86% of people end up with the same institution that they dealt with before on renewal. So they normally do keep with the same bank or, or credit union or investors group for that matter because normally they know it's pretty competitive out there. So if, if you do have a, a good customer that does qualify under the stress test, they don't want to lose that person. They, that, their job is to, to lend money to them, and that's how the banks make money. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, you go to another bank and, and you say, well, listen, I got this rate at, at uh, 3.29% for a five-year. Can you match it? And normally, if you're a good customer, because of your financial, not because you're a nice person, strictly financially you're a good, <laughs> good customer, you will qualify and they'll match it because they don't want to lose those people that, that pass the stress test. Well, because let's face it, you're probably just more than a mortgage customer to a lot. Of, if you've been in the business a long time and if you're, say, you know, pushing 40 or 50 or something like that, you may have RSPs, you may have some other stuff there too. Uh, so there's, there's a whole portfolio there and, and it, probably the bank wants to hold on to all of that. Yeah, they've got a share of the wallet, if you will. Yeah. You know, they, and they look at you know, pushing that uh, tax-free savings account towards you, which is, again, fantastic idea. Um, my beef has always been making sure you get the best TFSA, not just simply you know, one that pays less than 1%. Get an, an investment tax-free savings account. The, the, credit, the credit cards, they make a ton of money on credit cards. So, but you know, it is kind of nice to have your credit card lined up with your bank account so you can go online and see everything in one place. Yeah. And so it makes it very sticky to move. And if you do move your mortgage, you just might move everything else, like you said. Well, uh, best advice, obviously, is to talk it out and, 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 as you say, find out what's going on in the market, too. And, uh, don't, you know, just don't take the posted numbers. Uh, all right, I, I, think you, I think you've reassured me. Okay. <laughs> well, as I said, the, these, these stress tests is at 5.34%. I know you can get mortgages about 2% less than that, for sure, on a five-year rate. Um, locking for five years isn't a bad thing right now. Um, but I, I, you know, if if you didn't qualify for your mortgage at five point three four percent, you that means you are really in the you know that kind of high risk area, and this is where parents are getting involved and family members are, are yeah. helping out, and it's adding a whole domino effect on risk to the whole family, not just simply the kids, but to the the parents because um, they're kind of in a sandwich generation now where they're often helping their own parents at, say, a senior's home. They're also helping their kids trying to buy their own house. Well, exactly. So if you've got a renewal notice coming in, you've got some homework to do. Don, you always a it. pleasure to get you on here. Thanks so much for the time, and thanks for the advice today. Thanks, Bill. Anytime. You betcha. Don Fox, of course, Senior Executive Financial Consultant with the Investors Group. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Should sugary drinks be allowed in rec centers? Well, Hamilton's Board of Health has voted to ban the sale of sugary drinks and bottled water inside, uh, well, a number of different facilities. Now, we should just clarify, Hamilton's Board of Health is, in fact, Hamilton City Council. It's Everybody who's on City Council is automatically on the Board of Health. They just meet once a month, I guess it is, and put on their Board of Health hats, and they talk about health issues. And this is not the first time they've had this discussion, but uh, the the vote was 6-3 to three yesterday to uh, move ahead with this. Now, this the vote has to be ratified by the full city council, which is the same people, uh, at the next meeting. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, let's have a discussion about this. Terry Whitehead is a city councilor for Ward 8 up in the West Mountain and, uh, of course, sits on the board, as all councilors do. And he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. How are you this morning, Terry? Great, Bill. Great to be with you and your listeners. I hope you're not sipping on a bottle of water right now. 
<laughs> well, the water's fine. It's just water that I'm staying away from. But let's talk about this. And as I mentioned, this is not a new issue, and a lot of other municipalities have uh, have dealt with this in the past. But uh, there's there's a pro and con to this. Give me a read as to what happened yesterday and the and the tenor of the debate. So I think the context is that the uh, it's a three year phase out. So clearly, one of the big issues. Uh, uh, with waters, the, the plastic bottles, and we know the environmentalists uh, have uh, spoke uh, very clearly and pointedly about the issues. Uh, you know, but there will be more plastic in our oceans than fish. So clearly, there's an issue with uh, plastic bottles. We have uh, made great strides to put uh, water refilling stations and fountains in pretty well all our uh, rec centers and arenas. Uh, so uh, that, let's park that aside for a moment. And the other piece was uh, nutritional value. If it doesn't have nutritional value, we will phase it out and try and find alternative uh, uh, type uh, consumables uh, that can uh, uh, replace it over a three-year period. So I think that's in principle what the uh, meeting yesterday that was supported by the uh, Board of Health. So when, when you say phasing out snacks, let's talk about that. We'll get into the drink thing in a second. So does that mean as as time goes on here, you can't get a candy bar or a bag of chips at an arena? Well, right now they're focusing on drinks, but it is about nutritional. Uh, uh, you know, nutri- if it doesn't have nutritional value, you uh, eventually prohibit it over a three year period. And you know, here, here, here's the issue that I raise: one, um, uh, you have the Ministry of Health, you have FDA; they're the ones that uh, regulate. Uh, consumables uh, to the general public. They're the ones that regulate uh, ensuring that all the, uh, you know, the salt content, sodium content, uh, the sugar content is, is uh, on the bottle so that consumers uh, know exactly what they're getting. Uh, they also have the power, for example, to, uh, if, you know, they deem that sugar drinks are addictive and, and therefore should be banned, they have that power. Uh, they also have the power to 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 you know take out cheesecakes and 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 everything else that is available to the general public. The question is where does it stop and is it dangerous? And I think that's up to them to to decide. When you're looking at the municipal level, it's really not our jurisdiction. I guess my concern is one consultation. I'm not the kind of guy that really supports uh, you know the whole philosophy of representing city hall to the people. I rec- actually. Uh, subscribe. Maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I represent the people to City Hall. And what I mean by that is, when you mark on these kind of policies, you need to ensure you consult the community and get a, a clear understanding where the community stands. When you go in and say to the community through a survey, "Would you support more nutritional uh, uh, drinks and food in your in your center?" Uh, that's motherhood. But when you pose the question a different way and say, "Would you support phasing out?" all non-nutritional uh, drinks and food, that's a whole different question, and that question has never been asked. So certainly one of my bugaboos is do proper consultation. Let's find out where the community is on this issue before we make any informed decisions. The second piece is uh, that this a lot of this will still and continue to be available at the grocery stores, corner stores across the street. So basically what you're doing is just sticking your finger into the dam, there's a million holes, you're plugging in one hole, uh, thinking that you're going to get good results. So I asked the question, how do you measure the results? How do you measure the health outcomes? And it was clear that you can't. And I think good policy, public policy, is where you can actually measure a success of implementing a policy. Here, you will not be able to measure the success. 
So that's problematic for me because then I just don't think it's good public policy when you take that kind of approach. And lastly, when you've got things like uh, uh, Tim Horton Stadium and uh, First Ontario Place, uh, as you know, there's a junior team that just moved into the Anarchuk Arena uh, that will rely on revenue generation. And basically, they're exempting uh, two of those three. The Anarchuk Arena will not be exempted. Shadok Arena, which has big major tournaments, will not be exempted. And the challenge I have is uh, they did a pilot program to ban peanuts, for example, for a year. Yeah. Uh, uh, one arena, $23,000 in revenue lost. So, again, uh, what do you replace that revenue with? Because at the end of the day, the taxpayers get impacted. Well, that's, yeah, and that's, I, I know about the cost of arenas. Let's, we'll talk about that in a second. But you raise an interesting point, and, and I, I believe that the Board of Health does have a, a, a role to play here. And, and, and the smoking bylaw came into effect, and you and I were both involved in that way back when and, 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 and took a beating on it. I, I thought it was the right thing to do. But the, the, the argument always was that secondhand smoke can kill people just as much and tobacco. But if somebody is, is living a healthy life and, and exercising regularly and eating proper food and they go to a hockey game and decide, I think I'm going to have one, one of those plates of nachos with that plastic cheese on them, it's not going to kill them. And it's not going to hurt anybody else around them. Uh, but So it's an apples and oranges argument. Uh, as the, yes, obesity is a problem. You're absolutely right. And, and that stuff is not good for you. But you know what? I know lots of people that live healthy lives and every now and then decide to have a, a, you know, a little guilty pleasure. And, and they usually want to do it at a movie or a sporting event or something like that. Uh, and now the city's basically saying, no, we're not going to allow you to do that. I actually agree. I mean, I, you know, I go to the restaurant. I don't have to deserve that. You know, just not. But once in a blue moon, I'll have a, a a cheesecake. You know, and you know. So basically, this is government being the truth and saying, you know what, we're going to take uh, or we're going to make it more difficult for you to have those choices. So let's bring it back to uh, the rec centers. I mean, one location, a whole city, uh, and arenas. You're going to basically say uh, you're not going to have that choice in this facility. You can bring it in, but we're not going to give you that choice. And I just think that uh, again, it's like putting the you know, the the finger in the proverbial dike. Uh, when you're not really outlawing it, you're, you're just preventing it from one particular... I mean, how do you measure the, uh, the positive outcomes of such policy? And if you can't, then should you be doing it? You mentioned there's some places that have exemptions. Um, and, and I'm interested, Terry, uh, how did they select which ones were going to be exempted? I, I, you mentioned a couple of them. Is it because they can make a lot of money from those places and they don't want to lose the revenue? Well, isn't that ironic? Right? If you really uh, adhere to a principle, then you think that principle will apply across all city facilities. Uh, the, the explanation, basically, is that the concessions in some of these areas are not run by uh, the, the city, and therefore there's complications. But as you know, uh, Bill, that we own those facilities, and we can enter in, into the leases, and, and we can literally say, you know what, if we firmly believe in principle that uh, we're doing good by limiting all non-nutritional foods and, and drinks in, in these facilities, we can dictate that. Um, the, but the answer was that we don't run those concessions and therefore, we're not going to get involved. Well, yeah, and that's that sounds like a bit of a cop out because I mean, if they're dedicated to this, they can do something about this. I, well, that's I, my point. It's a bit of hypocrisy. If you either believe it or you don't, uh, there's, there's, uh, you're, you're, you're picking and choosing uh, your facilities. Is, is to me, I mean, if you really firmly believe that you're doing good, then why wouldn't you go the whole way? You mentioned revenue, Terry. Let's talk about this. My understanding is the staff report indicated that if they did this and move ahead with this, uh, that it's going to cost, uh, well, tens of thousands of dollars in lost revenue to the city. Well, there's, there's no question. I mean, uh, um, 
I think 80% of the sales of, uh, of, of these non-nutritional uh, drinks, for example, uh, and again, who do you, you know, for example, chocolate milk would, would fall into, in this category. Uh, you know, some people would like to replace their electrolytes, and yes, there's going to be high sugar in it, but you're still getting electrolytes. Well, that, that would be banned. So the question really is, um, what do you offer as alternatives, and whether those alternatives uh, will net the sales to replace what you're getting rid of? And I just don't think that's practical-minded uh, at all. I think people just start bringing in uh, what they, they, they wish if they can. Well, uh, let's let's talk about that for a second. And by the way, I want to correct myself. It's not tens of thousands of dollars. I'm just looking at the number here in the staff report. Uh, city concession vending machines generate $748,000 for the city yeah. so you're kissing that money goodbye if they go through think, with this seven almost why, almost eight hundred thousand dollars why i don't understand what i don't understand is why we don't just put educational signs by those vending machines talking about the uh the the dangers and concerns about the uh the sugary drinks so you're doing whatever you can to educate because i think that's our role as a municipality uh from a public health policy is to educate and uh but when you start uh, uh, taking public policy and going towards prohibition, uh, but you can only control uh, your rec centers and arenas, uh, and there's a, a product that be available everywhere else, it just doesn't make sense to me. Well, let's let's get into word wordsmithing here, because there's an important distinction to make. Uh, the headline, and what a lot of people are talking about here, is that, uh, and I'll look at the headline here in the paper, it says, Hamilton Board of Health approves the ban on bottled water and sugary drink sales, as you mentioned, snacks. Uh, what Essentially, what you're telling me, though, is you're just not going to sell them in the arena anymore. But if I want to bring a bag of peanuts into the arena, am I going to be stopped? No. If I no. bring a can of pop into the arena, am I going to be stopped? No. So there's no ban, really. It just means you're not going to sell them anymore. You're just not, you're just not going to have that choice in the, in the arena. So I, I, can, I, can, I can bring a, a can of ginger ale into the arena while I'm watching a hockey game. Uh, and and drink away. I mean, it's it's still there. I, I've That's just correct. as a matter of fact, I'm going to go buy it at the corner store where it's probably less expensive than it would be in the snack bar in the arena anyway. That's correct. So you're That's you're not you're not deterring me at all. Public policy when when again, you know, it it sounds good, um, but in in practical terms, it just isn't good. Well, it's it's not practical because uh, you know as well as I do, people are still just going to bring their their own stuff in. Yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I, that's the problem I'm having. Now, when if problem, you're not going to sell them anymore, does that mean there won't be blue boxes there for for recyclables? Well, I'm sure we'll still do our our part ensuring that the recyclable boxes are there, especially when you're inviting people. Because the, the the whole report yesterday talked about we're not going to take choices away. People could still bring these drinks into these facilities, so we still have to accommodate the uh, the waste that is produced from that. So it's it's banned, but it's not really banned. It, this is this is a feel good exercise, so they can say, "See, we're trying to do our part." Well, that's what it feels like to me. I mean, I just think that it's a bit intrusive. I, I you know, if if it was a complete ban on addictive drinks and non nutritional, then that should be the responsibility of the federal government to the FDA. Uh, when you look at the municipal level, I think our job is to educate uh, the general public on the uh, uh, the non nutritional value of a lot of the uh, consumables that uh, our children drink or eat, and I think that is our role. But not not getting to uh, uh, areas of prohibition. I just think that's crazy. And again, I, I just you know, in the interest of full disclosure, I, I don't have a, a dog in this fight here. Okay, I don't drink pop very much at all. 
used to, but uh, but I don't anymore. As a lot of us has, but and and you know, I don't not a lot of candy or anything like this. So it's not like, hey, I want to gorge myself on this stuff. I get that, but and and I get a little crazy when I see some people come back from the snack bar and they, like I say, they got the plate of nachos and a bag of popcorn and everything else. But that's that's the choice that they make, and the city's essentially saying we're not going to sell that stuff anymore. But it's still going to be consumed. You're not going to change people's lifestyles or eating habits by not having these in the arenas or the rec centers. Correct. I think this is about trying to denormalize. But you are going to you are going to decrease city revenues by eight hundred thousand dollars, and the taxpayer will be picking up that tab. Yeah, exactly. Uh, too bad, so sad. Here we are talking about efficiencies, and the city has just decided. Well, by six to three, anyway. That yeah, we're willing to to give up that eight hundred grand. That, well, it, it, just for clarification, at six three, I mean, there's fifteen uh, uh, people that can cast a vote, so that's nine. Yeah. Uh, so it's certainly a, a pretty significant number of uh, people that were not at that Board of Health meeting. I, I suspect that that uh, that the vote for this policy is tenuous at best, and that could flip very easily at at council. Now we want to actually uh, just in the point of interest here about about act, talking about rec centers and city facilities. Uh, so we're talking about arenas, okay? We're talking about places where you take your kids for practices or, or games or whatever the case might be. Uh, that also means, of course, uh, uh, well, there's there's obvious. Well, you own First Ontario Center. What are you going to do about that? Well, there's they're exempting First Ontario Place uh, and, and Tim Hortons Field. They're exempting Tim Hortons Field because like you make a lot of money from that. And, and, and like I said, we just moved a junior team from Ancaster to uh, uh, to, to the Andrew Chuck Arena, yeah. And sometimes they rely on a percentage of the concession uh, in regards to their activity, you know, obviously just to sustain themselves. Yet they're not getting an exemption. I'm going, well, why would we, in principle, uh, allow exemptions for Tim Hortons and First Ontario plays, but yet uh, at Andrew Chuck Arena where, you know, we want this team to, to sustain itself and be good and provide that choice for people to attend and yet you're going to take uh, some of the revenue-generating possibilities away from them. What about golf courses? You own golf courses in the city. By understanding, all publicly-owned uh, facilities, with exception, with some some exceptions. Uh, that, that's including libraries, too. So no snacks there. Uh, golf courses, if you want to bring a bottle of water and carry it around in your bag, you can't do that anymore. Well, you won't be able to buy it anyway. Well, yeah, let's be clear, though, where the golf courses have um, sort of the restaurant side of it, uh, I don't think that's going to change. For example, I use the quad pad arena, as you know, yep. uh, that upstairs has the, um, the, the, the sort of the restaurant area. So that area is not going to be impacted by the policy, but it'll be the vending machine and the, and the concessions downstairs that would be impacted. Not, not the restaurant itself, not the snack bar. Correct. So you can still go to a city golf course. You can have all the beer you want. You just can't buy water. <laughs> well, yeah. What, okay, what's wrong with this picture? Uh, well, how how long was the debate on this, Terry? It just we, seems we as if... We didn't talk about the water much. and I want to be clear. The water is, is just a, an issue of the plastics. Yeah, I get that. I uh, get that. the fact that we've got refilling stations and fountains in pretty well every facility, the ones that don't will still be... Uh, bottled water will still be available. Uh, so they're basically saying, look, bring your bottle uh, or, you know, maybe we'll supply paper uh, Dixie uh, cups for uh, your, your drinks. But we want to do our part in, in uh, reducing the amount of uh, plastics that end up in our waste sites. I, and on that side, you know, uh, I think there is an argument because we are and put significant investments into these water filling stations and, and fountains in every uh, facility. So you have access to water. And I think that's a little bit of a different argument. 
Were there delegations? You just mentioned a couple of minutes ago that you and I know a lot of your fellow counselors uh, like to get public input for stuff that, let's face it, there's a certain contentious element to this. Uh, did did this just get debated among yourselves, or was there, was there actually some input from from the public on this? No, there, there was eight delegations. Okay, uh, and, you know, all predominantly, mostly focused on the water and plastics. Let's be clear; that's what they focused on. Um, but the public health is very good in um, coordinating um, a number of uh, speakers to support their policy. Uh, there wasn't a huge call out for delegations on this policy. Um, so you know, that's my point. I'd, I'd love to hear from the broader public and what they think uh, in regards to, uh, you know, and I asked public health yesterday, did you ask this question? Because they talked about it in these surveys. People want more nutritional choices, which is motherhood. I say, yeah, but did you, uh, did you ask this specific question? Do you support phasing out all non-nutritional uh, beverages? And the answer was no, they didn't ask that question. So why are we suggesting that's what our goal is? Well, we haven't consulted the community. Well, I just remember when the Board of Education did this some years ago, and, and they were feeling pretty good about themselves and say, we're making nutritional choices for the kids. This is going to be great. And uh, then I'd talk to some of the principals, and they'd say, you know, we're really concerned about the kids at lunch or they're just running across the road over the variety store to the Tim Hortons and buying all the sugary stuff and sweets they want and bringing them back. So, I mean, you know, have they really accomplished anything? And that may well be uh, the conundrum you're going to face here. Well, like I said, there's, there's a, a thing called the feel-good exercise. So, in, you know, from a macro point of view, less uh, uh, high-sugar drinks and, and non-nutritional foods that our youth uh, consume or people consume uh, is a good thing. Uh, that's in principle. But as long as it's available, uh, then I think we have a job to educate. Uh, we do not have the jurisdiction to prohibit it across the city. Well, or the, or the country. If people have thoughts on this, call your counselor because it's got to go to the whole council before this thing gets ratified or turned down, whatever the case might be. Terry, thanks for the time today. Appreciate the uh, the update. Thank you for having me. Ward 8 Counselor Terry Whitehead. Uh, sugary drinks, uh, should the city ban the sale of them? You can you can still bring them in if you want them. If you really you have to have that, that Diet Coke or whatever it is, knock yourself out. But you can't buy it there anymore. And it's probably going to cost the city about $800,000 in revenue if they do this. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, I want to talk about privacy and your privacy, uh, because it's a main issue and it's, it's a very concerning issue. Uh, there's always been a debate and probably still continues to be a debate about the, the use of closed-circuit TV cameras uh, in, in public properties, of course. We have some downtown Hamilton. Many other jurisdictions have many more than we do. But there are also private citizens that have CCTV, and uh, they put them up there for security purposes. The current bylaw says that, yeah, you can have one on your private property, but only if it's directed at your property. You cannot direct the camera to the street. Well, the city council's thinking of changing that, and it's uh, drawing an awful lot of feedback and a lot of pushback from an awful lot of people. Joining us to talk about the ramifications, David Fraser, lawyer with the McInnes Cooper in Nova Scotia, leading internet technology and privacy lawyers. David, thank you so much for the time. It's good to talk with you again. No, always happy to chat. Let's let's talk a little bit about the status quo in Hamilton and 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 maybe what's going on in other jurisdictions. Uh, and uh, and I guess the the fact that let's face it, I mean, as much as there was a huge debate about using CCTV many years ago, have we become used to it now? Is it is it the norm? Oh, I think that's probably probably the case. If you think about, you go back 20 years or 25 years, 
the only place you would see a camera would be in a bank and it yeah. was the size of a microwave and it was <laughs> it was pretty <laughs> obvious but thanks to digital technology and kind of just improvements in technology generally these cameras are much smaller and they're much cheaper and so they've been deployed all over the place they're they're you go into a mall you go to a gas station you go just about anywhere and there's going to be cameras and so it's not surprising that as the price has gone down and down and down uh, that individuals are thinking about putting them uh, on their home and their premises. And particularly kind of at the same time, we have at least a reported upsurge in theft of packages, for example, from people's properties. Amazon drops something off or FedEx drops something off on your front porch. Those things get stolen. And so we have a proliferation of video doorbells and wireless cameras that are that are you can get them at Home Depot. You can get them at Staples. They're all over the place. Oh, sure. I mean, you, know, you can get that app on your phone, right? I mean, you can you can be down in Boca Raton, Florida, and, and somebody rings your doorbell in Hamilton, and, and you can find out who it is because there's a camera there. Oh, absolutely. I was at a, at a meeting in London in, in November, and the guy that I was next to pulled out, pulled out his phone and showed me the, uh, the, the, the live video from his house in Thailand. Uh, it's pretty uh, pretty remarkable, and uh, so it, it shouldn't be surprising that, that there's a, a desire for for people to use these. Uh, but I've also had, and, and I guess because I'm pretty easy to find and connect with privacy, I regularly get people who contact me who are upset because their neighbor has a camera that's pointed towards their property, and they feel that that's an invasion or intrusion upon their privacy and their ability to, for example, use their backyard. And therein lies the problem. Uh, that sounds like an intrusion, I think, to many of us. But you know, the other example that often gets used here in this area, in the Hamilton area, of course, is is, is police using this kind of uh, surveillance video. And there was a, cl- a very famous murder case, the Tim Bosma murder case from a few years ago. I know it got national attention. But one of the reasons that the police were able to track the, the movement of the vehicles that may have been involved in that crime was because of CCTV from some of the local businesses, which were not just directed at the uh, the building itself, but out toward the street. And they were able to track those vehicles. And they said, see, we may not have been able to solve this crime if it had not been for that. And they look at that as justification. Is that a valid argument? Well, it, it, it may be, but we, we need to look at it kind of both in, in its details and kind of zoom back and say, are we, are we comfortable with this level of, of surveillance? One thing that, that in fact, does protect our privacy, even when all these cameras are deployed, is if they're not connected to each other. So, for example, if the police are investigating something specific, they have to go and look around, find the cameras, knock on doors. They're not able to remotely access them and and pull down that information, which is the case, for example, in London, where the London Metropolitan Police operate a significant network of of CCTV cameras that that all kind of feed into a central location. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they're kind of bifurcated or there's these kind of small walls between them do help to, to protect our privacy. And, and really, there's there's a number of different dimensions to it. It's not just, is there a camera? It's, it, is there a camera and is it recording? Who's watching it? Who has access to it? Under what circumstances is that going to be used? And at least the public sector, the, the municipality, for example, or the province, should have rules. They're subject to privacy laws, and they should have rules about well, what is the purpose for the surveillance? What, what are we going to use the, the camera feed for? Now, individuals, private citizens, are completely unregulated in, in that way. And so they, the, the only thing that really limits what they can do is whether or not what they're doing constitutes an unreasonable invasion of somebody else's privacy. And then, of course, you have bylaws that talk about you shouldn't point them into, a, into public spaces, which doesn't speak to pointing it at your neighbor's house, though. 
and and I don't know if that's a loophole or not. I mean, we've we've heard situations like this. I mean, you know, people investigating it and a crime or something like this, and they say, check all the businesses and see who's got cameras and, and see if you can get the footage. Which goes to your point, David. Who does have access to that information? Who can see those? Who's allowed to? Well, nobody has an obligation to provide any information to the police unless the police get a court order. Um, so it relies on on voluntary cooperation. And actually, businesses aren't able to just hand it over, although they do all the time. They're they're violating privacy laws of doing that, and, and the police don't mind that at all. Um, but uh, but certainly, th- there should be some understanding of uh, and, and. But as I said, in, individuals, private individuals, are completely unregulated. They can do whatever they want with it. In fact, you could take your 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 video camera in your front yard, uh, and you can stream it live on the internet if you want to. Um, as long as it doesn't constitute an unreasonable evasion of somebody's privacy, and if it's if it's in a place that's otherwise visible from a public street, for example, there's virtually no privacy interest there whatsoever uh, in, in terms of how the law applies. Uh, but the individuals who live or spend time in that space probably would have a different opinion. So I know it sounds like splitting hairs, but it's, I think it's a it's a very interesting difference. So if 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 my neighbor's got this thing pointed in my backyard, I've maybe got a case that he's invading my privacy. But if it's pointed to my front yard, well, I can see that from the sidewalk anyway. Should there be no expe- expectation of privacy? Well, I think realistically speaking, there's a reduced expectation of privacy. Sure, okay. Somebody, if they wanted to, could could park or pull up a lawn chair in the sidewalk or on the on the median and and kind of watch your watch your front yard. It would be super creepy. I, I've had neighbors like that. Yeah. <laughs> People should have better things to do with their time, I would hope. Yeah, I think. But, I mean, it is possible and feasible in situations like that. Uh, so so this concern that people have about, well, you know, my neighbor's going to point this thing here. I've got a backyard barbecue coming up. It's the May 2-4 weekend. Uh, things may get a little rowdy. I really don't want video evidence of what we're going to be doing there because somebody, you know, may want to access that. It's it's really none of their business. Can you do anything about it? Uh, not really. Uh, you're, you're really quite limited. There's actually there was a case in Nova Scotia of a, a woman who had felt threatened in a number of ways, and they put a, a, an extensive network of cameras around her house that included at the neighbor, and then the neighbor complained to the police, and the police actually charged her, uh, but, it, uh, which, but it resulted in, in an acquittal. It was a, a reasonable thing for, for her to do, and it wasn't the sort of thing that the criminal law responds to. Um, I, it may make sense, it, it actually may make more sense for the municipality to try to regulate pointing cameras at somebody else's property compared to into a public space. So, for example, if uh, if you use on-street parking, you might want to have a camera pointed to where you usually park your car, which is, of course, a public place, uh, but you're worried about, I can't tell you the number of times I've had to replace my side mirrors because idiots have clipped them off my car and have kept on uh, kept on driving. It'd be useful to have a, have a recording that would include a description of the car that, that did that. Um, but uh, yeah, but I, I can see that. I can't do that. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, there are neighborhoods where the on-street parking is the only thing that you've got. To, and if you've got an expensive car or a car that you like a lot, you don't want vandalism or anything. Or if you do, you want to be able to say, hey, it happened at 835 last night, and there's the guy that did it. That's right. That's right. And, and I've seen friends of friends on Facebook kind of post that sort of stuff to say, hey, look, this this happened to my car the other day. Does, any, does anybody know anything? Did anybody see anything? Does, does anybody recognize this, uh, this car? And so it does. It does make sense, and, and I think that's probably using the cameras as they were intended to. Um, they shouldn't be used to, to cause a nuisance. So you, you might actually have some civil remedy if somebody points a camera in your yard, uh, if they're unduly interfering with your enjoyment of your property, and if part of your enjoyment of the property is to uh, have a, a raucous May two four weekend, hopefully not too loud, so you're not making a nuisance yeah, to your neighbor. Yeah. Uh, you you might in fact have a civil claim uh, because. 
you're supposed to be able to fully enjoy your property. And if somebody does something that, that affects that, um, which can be loud music, it could be pointing a camera. I haven't seen any cases that, that go that far, but uh, certainly it looks like that's the sort of civil remedy you might have. But I would hope that the first step would be knocking on your neighbor's door and saying, hey, do you mind pointing that someplace else? David, what's the trend these days? You mentioned being in London, and I've, I've been over there a number, well, not a number of times, but a few times, and you're right. I mean, there are CCTV cameras all over the place in, in the city of London. In England, we're talking about in the U.K., not yeah. in on Ontario. Uh, but but this the, the upset that that seems to be raised here in Hamilton right now is because they thought they had a pretty compromised bylaw here that says yeah you can have one on your property but it's got to be pointed only at your house and there's and city council are the ones that are, seem to be driving this based on some of the public input they're getting that says no 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 if they want to point it toward the street that should be their business and and too bad so sad if you think it's an intrusion what, what what's happening in other jurisdictions. Well, actually, I haven't heard debate about bylaws like this in in, in, in any other place. This is the first time that it's uh, that I've really heard it come to the uh, come to the fore. Certainly, I've heard some discussion about it in public places. For example, in Halifax, where I live, uh, Spring Garden Road is one of the one of the major kind of shopping streets. And mm-hmm. Yeah, people who say that there's a problem with panhandlers, and so they so some of the merchants have put cameras out that point to the sidewalk. Um, in, some would say that's an attempt to kind of intimidate uh, people who are panhandling, or it's others would say, well, it's just sensible security. And you know, frankly, I, I can see both arguments to that. And and if if your storefront is prone to vandalism, having a camera that that is in that area really makes some sense. Uh, but then there's a the whole kind of London, England example, which is this massive network of surveillance cameras that uh, that are intended for law enforcement purposes. And as long as they're used for law enforcement purposes, I've less of a concern. As I said, kind of the proof is in the policies that, that are behind it. If you recall the, uh, the, the attacks that happened in London a number of years ago, they were able to reverse the, the steps of the individual suspects yeah. by piecing together CCTV, and presumably that was computer-assisted. Uh, and there's also the whole other thing that if you introduce kind of facial recognition, which is something that's been tried, for example, in, in stadiums at large events in the United States with a, a significant false positive rate where innocent people are, are kind of assumed to be criminals or terrorists or wanted people uh, because of failures in the accuracy of the technology. But but the critics of, of this move, especially here in the Hamilton area, are suggesting that really what this is doing is just letting the public do the, the, the work the police want to have done, that, i.e. having cameras all over the place. Is that a valid oh. argument? Well, I think so. I think it's probably that that was one of the, the, the more cynical thoughts that was going through my mind when thinking about this, is that, uh, yeah, absolutely. If, if the police have had access to CCTV in the past and have used it for crime prevention or crime investigation, uh, absolutely. I'm sure that they would think that the more of this, the better, and the easier access that they have to it. I've heard about a municipality, I don't recall which one off the top of my head, where individual members of the public were invited to register their, their video cameras. Uh, just to let the police know that they have a camera in this place, not to give them access to the feed, so that in the event of, a, of an investigation, the police would have a short list of people whose doors to knock on to say, hey, look, there was a crime in this area. Uh, did you happen to catch, capture any, any images of it um, and in order to speed up their investigation? So I can certainly see that that, that efficiency in law enforcement argument uh, may in fact be something that's a significant driver behind the scenes. Yeah, that's the gist, I think, of the argument by the, some of the critics here. Is they say, look, this is just an end run around the, the current process. Uh, police are not allowed to put uh, CCTV cameras in, in the residential neighborhoods on every corner. But if, if residents are allowed to do that, well, hey, we just have to knock on the door and say, hey, can we look at that? That's right. That's right. 
Yeah, and I think we, we always need to have, and, and the discussion like the one we're having, I think, is a very important part of the democratic process. We need to decide as a society, um, are we, where are we going to draw lines? Uh, is the trade-off for public safety or individual kind of uh, the integrity of your own property and protection from vandalism, is that sufficient importance so that it overrides the other kind of privacy rights at the, at the, other, end of the uh, other end of the equation? And, and that seems to be the gist of this. But uh, here we are talking about this at the at the municipal level. I would like to think, that, and and I I know I'm going to get the complaints about nanny state, et cetera. But should there not be some overarching uh, protocol for this? Well, it probably makes some sense. And, and actually, I, I wonder about whether or not it's really within a municipality's power to, yeah. to regulate this sort of stuff. This is usually the purview of a of a provincial government. Provincial governments have exclusive jurisdiction over what's called property and civil rights, and protection of property obviously falls in the property part, and civil rights is, is the, the privacy part of the equation. Um, and it, it would make sense to have a, a, a better understanding and, and, and something common so that, for example, the rules are the same in Hamilton as the same in, in London, Ontario, the same as Ottawa and Toronto. Mm-hmm. We're not there yet, though, are we? No, not, not quite. I think that uh, the politicians have been very hesitant to... Uh, talk about regulating the privacy rights of individuals or, or the ability or to <laughs> regulate the ability of individuals to collect, use, and dispose personal information. We have laws that regulate the government. We have laws that regulate healthcare providers. We have laws that regulate businesses. But individuals are, are essentially unregulated except to the extent that they can be sued for an unreasonable invasion of privacy, which really does have to be outrageous or the, the, the nuisance thing that I talked about earlier. Well, as you and I have talked about in the past, though, I think we as a, a society are just starting to awaken now to, from the naivety that, hey, nobody's really going to watch us anyway. I mean, we're always intrigued by, hey, i got a camera on my computer here so I can actually teleport you. Yeah, well, they can see you, too, uh, anytime they want. Well, you're kidding. Uh, and, well, and the same thing is happening here now. Well, it may end up being kind of the privacy in the crowd. There's just going to be so many cameras and so many feeds that nobody's going to be interested in watching them. Uh, and they'll only be used when something when something important happens. So many of these cameras, for example, will uh, because they, they go to the cloud and they're they're cloud storage and that and that has a cost. They're they're only actually recording when they detect motion, mm-hmm. and then they delete after depending on the plan you have. Might delete after a day, might delete after a week, or might delete after after a month. And so uh, by default, they're not compiling kind of a massive dossier. Uh, or anything. And so, again, kind of what's happening behind the lens really does have a significant impact on on the privacy issues that are at stake. David, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. It's greatly appreciated. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime. Take, Take care. care. David Fraser, of course, lawyer with McKinnis Cooper in Nova Scotia. They are the leading internet technology and privacy lawyers. And the debate continues here in Hamilton. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.